You're listening to the Chi Alpha Christian Fellowship Podcast from Summit 2019 with sessions from San Angelo State, New Mexico State, and Texas Tech University. We are so glad you're here, and we hope this message will encourage you and challenge you in your walk with the Lord. All right, how y'all doing? We got a lot of ground to cover. We're going to learn how to study the Bible. Um, so good times. All right. Okay, so everybody get something out that you can write with and something to write on. Cool. All right. Came prepared. Okay, so the best way to study the Bible is to actually read it. Okay? All right, let's pray. The average, the average Christian in America spends three minutes a day in devotions. Three minutes. That's the average, so that means half the population is doing worse. So if you don't understand the Bible, I'm willing to bet it's because you're not actually reading it. Second best way to understand the Bible is to write down stuff while you're reading. Right? It's called studying. Y'all should be good at it, right? You're in college. Right? Anybody do that? You take notes when you, write, when you read? Like you read your textbooks and then you take notes on the important things. So then when you have to go back and study, you don't have to read the whole textbook again. You can just read the notes that you wrote. It's kind of the same thing. Anyway, okay. Um, so uh, for those of you who don't know, my name is Christopher Scroggins. I'm the campus pastor at Angelo State. Uh, so pray for them. Uh, ASU people, I'm really sorry. I'm trying my best. Um, but yeah, so uh, I got my, my uh, degree from Sam Houston State University uh, in history with a minor in German, so I'm unemployable. Uh, that's why I'm in ministry right now. Uh, it took me 10 years to get my bachelor's degree. 10 years, okay, from like one of the worst universities in the world. Okay, like to get into Sam Houston State, you have to have a heartbeat and walk upright. Like that's the entrance requirements, you know? Like, you know what I'm saying? I mean, like, come on. And if I can study the Bible, it took me 10 years to get a four-year degree, people. If I can study the Bible, you can too. Because I know all of your schools are better than the one I went to, okay? Like literally, I remember when I was transferring... They were like, uh, oh, you need nine credit hours and a 2.0 to get in. Nine credit hours and a 2.0. A 2.0. That's like you show up to three quarters of the classes you signed up for, and you're in. Like I remember the rep goes, you can sleep through next semester and still get in. Because I was at a junior college. And so I slept through the next semester and still got in, you know. Don't look at me like that. Don't judge me. Don't judge. How dare you? How dare you? Okay, anyway. Um, so, uh, first thing we're going to talk about is just a little bit of kind of interpretation notes that we need to know. Okay? Um, so, the first thing is, uh, we're going to talk about historiography, right? I'm a, trained as a historian. Okay? And so, one of, the, one of the big lessons I learned as a historian, this will help you as a small group leader and also help you as, I don't know, a human being just making friends with people. Okay? And uh, it's this idea of like, um, okay, if, if I'm here in the present, oh, dang it, I forgot to hand these out. 
you guys, y'all aren't really writing. You're just texting. Hand those out. Um, so if, if I'm here in the present, right, and I'm, uh, and I'm like projecting my value system on the past, and I'm looking for high points in history, right, I'll probably go all the way back and hit like the Greeks, and I'm going to be like, oh, they were pretty cool. They had democracy. That's, that's nice. Or, and then I'll get to the Persians, like, oh, they didn't have slavery. They're very woke. And then I'll go forward, and I'll hit like the Romans, and I'll be like, hey, literacy is kind of cool. In concrete, awesome. I love engineering. And then we'll move forward, and then we'll hit Charlemagne, and we'll be like, hey, that guy was big on literacy, and he put spaces between words. That's wonderful. I love spaces between words. In punctuation, that was his idea, right? And then we hit the Dark Ages, and I'm like, there's nothing but people like, like shoveling mud for fun and dying of the plague in the middle, you know, dark ages, right? That's just weird. They're stupid. But then, oh, thank goodness, we hit the Enlightenment, right? Now we got Voltaire and, 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 and all the philosophers, right? And all these great guys and like, whoa, Newton's here, yay, right? And, and history's going to look like that, kind of climbing the dip and then up again, right? And that's how history's going to look. But the problem with that is that it's my value system, not their value system. I'll never really understand them. I can, I can look at some of the things they did and see if I agree with them or not, but I can't understand why they did them. Does that make sense? Okay, so we're going to look at the worst point in church history, the Crusades, okay? And we're going to see, we're going to look at them, right? Because we look at them and I'm like, I read the words of Jesus and I never have read the words of Jesus and then thought, I need to stab somebody in the face. <laughs> right? And that seems to be what the Crusaders did. Everybody get a handout? That's just a basic timeline. Use it when you're studying the Bible. Okay? I don't have time to explain it to you anymore. Okay. Um, you can read words. Uh, okay, so the Crusaders, right? Like, how do you get from uh, love your neighbor as yourself to die, right? Like, okay, now if we, there's this thing called context, okay? Context. It's really important that you understand context for people, places, things, the Bible. So the Crusaders context, right? What you have to do is you have to take whatever your system is and you have to just set it aside. Just forget about it, Okay? And then you have to take whatever the value system of the crusaders was and you have to accept it. Don't judge it. It could be bad. You're right. But just accept it. And then look at the world around you from their perspective. Does that make sense? You see how that's going to help you make friends too? Anyway, um, so like if you're a crusader, right, odds are you were probably a poor like subsistence farmer and your family is tied to this land that some lord and some castle owns. And you can't move away even if you wanted to. Your life is going to look a lot like the life of your father and your grandfather and your grandfather's father. And there's not a lot of hope for your future. This is what you're doomed to. And then, the only way that you have any kind of access to God, Jesus, or heaven is through your priest. Because he reads the Bible. And the Bible's in Latin. You can't even read the language that you speak, let alone Latin, right? So how do you even know what Jesus says except for what that priest says? And then one day, your priest comes to church and he says, there have been people making the pilgrimage to Jesus' hometown to pray where little eight pounds, six ounce baby Jesus was born, 
right? To go and worship in the place where he was crucified. But the bad Muslims are there and they're stabbing people and they're preventing them from worshiping Jesus and God's heart is broken. His holy land is in the hands of the enemy, right? Now remember, you know nothing else. And then that priest says, and also, if you go and retake the holy land, God says that you will get into heaven no matter what. How do you not take that? That's your only hope for improvement in your life. How do you not do that? All of a sudden, the crusaders have a little bit of dignity, don't they? All of a sudden, they're a little bit sympathetic. They may be stupid, but they're sympathetic. Does that make sense? And it's that principle that we need when we read the Bible. Right? We have to look at the context. Who was the Bible written to? Because this book was written to a specific people in space and time. They were in a specific culture, in a specific place, at a specific point in time. Okay? The first law of hermeneutics. Anybody know that word, hermeneutics? All right. There's a couple nerds. Um, Hermeneutics is a fancy word for interpreting the Bible because theologians want to feel important. Right? The first law of hermeneutics, it can never mean for you what it never meant to them. If you're writing, I would encourage you to write this. It can never mean to you what it never meant to them. It can never mean for you what it never meant to them. Does that make sense? Okay. Um, a couple other things we need to talk about with, before we jump into really studying the Bible. Because the idea is that I'm going to tell you the principles, show you how the principles work, so that you can do it yourself. Cool? All right. So, um, another thing is that the Bible was written uh, by Bible nerds. Okay? Like, the people that wrote the Bible were nerds about the Bible itself. Like, how is that possible? Well, because it covers a lot of time, right? That timeline that's right in front of you. The last line of Genesis to the first line of Exodus, right? Genesis, the first book, Exodus, the second book. There's 400 years. 400 years. It was already ancient history. That's like us talking about Jamestown in Virginia, right? The first settlement in North America. You tracking? And then from Exodus to like when the Psalms were written is another 400 years. 400 years. Now we're talking like Genesis to Psalms, 800 years. That's ridiculous, right? Okay. So when an author in the Bible references or alludes to something that happened previously, it's on purpose. It's not an accident. They mean to do that. They want you to recall that previous event for a reason. Does that make sense? Okay, so um, ah, never mind. We'll keep going. All right. Um, do you have any questions so far? Okay. Cool. Good time, everybody, good time. Okay, so Genesis is where we're going to start, all right? And it's the most important book 
I think, in the Bible. Okay? Um, if you don't understand the first 11 chapters of Genesis, you will not understand anything else that happens in the Bible. If you haven't read the first 11 chapters of Genesis and then try and read the rest of the Bible, you're going to be lost. It's like trying to watch Lord of the Rings, but you skip the prologue. And you're like, why are all these short people with hairy feet afraid of a ring? I don't understand what's happening. Right? Why is Magneto with the long beard? Um, see what I mean? Like, you'll be completely lost. This is the prologue to the whole thing. This sets up the entire narrative. Right? And N.T. Wright, who's probably one of the foremost New Testament scholars in the world right now, uh, he says, if you don't understand the first three chapters of Genesis, you will not understand anything that Paul writes. Paul wrote two-thirds of the New Testament. Right? So it's important that you take your time in the beginning. Cool? Uh, secondly, this is kind of a personal thing. There's a lot, of, uh, a lot of preachers or theologians or scholars that like to study eschatology, right? The, the study of the end times, you know? Like there's some preachers out there that every time there's like a blue moon, they're like, Jesus is coming back, you know what I mean? <laughs> like every time there's a new president, if he's a Democrat, it's like the Antichrist, right? You know what I'm saying? Eschatology from Greek, eschaton, meaning the end, and ology, the study of, right? I'm more of a fan of protology. Pro meaning before, beginning. So let's study the beginning, because the first two chapters of Genesis, at least, is how God intended things to be before it all went wrong. You understand? And then, if you study Revelation, what you're doing is you're studying his recovery, we're just getting back to step zero. You understand? So the opening of the book, Genesis, is definitely like God's intention and his plan and his hope and his dream. That's what he's shooting for. Does that make sense? Okay. Um, I'll skip that part. Okay. Uh, we'll just start at the beginning. Verse one. Everybody got your Bibles out? Because I know he didn't come to the Bible study seminar without a Bible. <laughs> I love you. Okay. Um, all right. We encountered the first seven words in the Hebrew Bible, right? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Okay? If you're an atheist, you already have problems because it's got God in it. Right? If you're a materialist, you already have issues because it's got the heavens in it right? If you're existentialist, you already hate it because it's got the earth in it, right? Like, we, we got all kinds of problems already, right? But here's the first thing that we can learn, okay? Here's a great resource. I forgot to say this at the top. Blueletterbible.com. Blueletterbible.com. Okay. You can click on the verse. There's a, if you type in the verse, there's a thing that says tools. You click on that, and you can see in a linear Bible, you can see the Hebrew words. You can click on a breakdown of the Hebrew words. It'll show you every way that word's been translated in the entire Bible. It can also show you the lexicon, which is, which is how the word was used outside of the Bible, right? Look, guys, I'm dumb. I'm not an intelligent human being, and I have figured this out, Okay? I'm 36 now, and I've just gotten to this point. So y'all can do it before you're 30. Easy, okay? All right. So the first, like, first thing that would jump out to the, to the listener, to a Hebrew Jewish boy that's listening to this, right? First thing that you notice is that the word for God is plural, Elohim, E-L-O-H-I-M, Elohim, right? 
But the word for create, bara, is singular. Right? And if you speak a language other than English, you know that you need noun-verb agreement, right? English, we just kind of make it up as we go along because it's stupid language. It's like somebody took like Norman French and like Latin Celtic and then German and put it in a blender, right? And this is our language. Wonderful. Anyway, um, but all of a sudden we, we have this image, right? We have this, this picture of a plural God that acts as one, that functions as one. Does that sound like any kind of major doctrine in Christianity to anybody? The Trinity, right? And so what this does is we're going to pull this thread, okay? And this is what happens with the Bible, okay? Is that concepts, ideas, images, phrases are repeated throughout the Bible, and it's supposed to act like a meme, because this book was written to an illiterate people, right? And so those images that words would create in the head, right? That's, that's, that was meant to bring in this whole backloaded issue. Like when Jesus is on the cross, right? And he says, Eloi, Eloi, lamach sabachthani, right? He is quoting the first line of Psalm 122. And he's quoting it because he wants you to remember not the first line, but the whole psalm. Because later in that psalm, around verse 12, if memory serves me correctly, it says, I'm surrounded by my enemies. They have pierced my hands and feet. Right? But none of my bones are broken. They cast lots for my clothing. Isn't that crazy? Just FYI, we have, we have copies of that psalm that date, predate the existence of Jesus. So we know that it wasn't scribal entry later on. But that's, <clears throat> no one cares. Um, okay, so... That's how it functions, right? These ideas that replicate, right? And they recall them so that you will recall them and not just recall the instance specific, but the context of that instance. Does that make sense? Okay, so here is the first one. A plural God that acts as one, that is treated as one. When he's the subject of the sentence, he's singular, okay? And then later as we move forward, we see Moses is walking across the desert, I guess, I don't know, strolling, and then he sees a bush on fire, okay? I think it's funny, the Bible says that it, he notices the bush isn't consumed. So were there other bushes on fire? And he was like, oh, they're being burned up, it's fine? Like, because if I see plants randomly combusting, I think I would have issue, right? But no, so there's this bush on fire, and it says in, in the Bible that the angel of the Lord spoke to Moses, and then Moses responds, and then it says, the Lord spoke to Moses. So all of a sudden, we have this other category that's been opened up by the first line of Genesis, right? That there's this God, and then there's this angel of God, but they're the same. And then as we continue forward, we see the glory of the Lord, and then we see the name of the Lord. And then we see the angel of the Lord. That's not the Lord, but it is the Lord. And then we have Jesus, who is fully man and fully God, as the fulfillment of Genesis 1. The plural God creates as one, right? Do you see how that works? And we're just in like the fourth word. Isn't that nuts? This is what happens when you study the Bible. So 
when you have your pen and paper out, when you're studying the Bible, because you will never study the Bible without having pen and paper out ever again, or the Lord may rebuke you, amen, right? You write these things down, make note of it. There's nothing wrong with that, right? There's no law against it. You can do that. It's, no one will like helicopter into your house and arrest you. You're fine, right? Okay. The earth was formless and void, and darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was moving over the surface of the waters. Here we go. We just reinforced our point from verse 1, right? There's the Spirit of God, okay? So formless and void, it's, it's a really fun Hebrew phrase. Ready? Okay, I'm going to say it, and then you'll have to repeat it. Tohu vavohu. That was weak. Tohu vavohu. Do you feel silly saying it? Yeah, me too. It's okay. It's okay. Okay, so in our English, we have it translated as formless and void. I think this is a bad translation. In fact, if you read the Bible in some other languages, it will be translated differently. In the German, it's, it's translated as a wild desert, right? I think the, the best translation is wild and waste. Wild and waste, right? Or chaotic and useless, Chaotic and useless, right? So here we have God. Because, you know, when, when I hear the word formless and void, right, I think it's just like a lump of Play-Doh that my kids just like dumped on the table, right? It's formless and void. It's just kind of there, right? But wild and waste is something different, right? If, if you're like a, if you're a contemporary of when Genesis was written, you're some farmer somewhere probably, right? And you're surrounded by land. There's plenty of land, but it's wild and it's waste. It does you no good. It's not until the land's put under plow and becomes part of a garden that it becomes useful. Because gardens have utility and beauty, right? Okay. And then God said, let there be light. And then there was light. God just brought order into chaos. God brings order into chaos. So if you feel like your life is chaotic and wasteful, it's probably because you're not close to God. Because he brings order to your chaos. And he brings usefulness and purposefulness to your life. Does that make sense? Okay, we're in verse 3, right? Isn't this great? Okay, um, <clears throat> I'm like legit trying to condense a three-hour lecture into 45 minutes. So you guys are getting like shortchanged really hard. Okay, um, um, sorry, my voice is starting to go. Okay, so first day, uh, oh shoot, I was supposed to hand out shirts. Okay. Oh, that was weak. Pass me back. Okay, um, there you go. Y'all did something special for it. Um, just <laughs> lie. I don't care. Okay, uh, we're all Christians here. They have to forgive you. <laughs> Cut that out on the recording. Um, okay, uh, on the first day, what did God create? We just said it. Anybody? No, light. Light and dark. Okay. Second day, what did God create? Say, say it again louder. 
That's right. Boom, you're genius. I wish I had another shirt to give you, but I just wastefully threw them. Um, okay, third day, what did God create? Land and plants. It's a bonus creation day. Day three, bonus creation. We get two of them. We get land and plants. Boom, right? Pretty cool. Okay, fourth day, what does God create? Y'all are so shy. Is everybody tired? Come on. Okay, yes. Sun, stars, moon, all that fun stuff. Okay, fifth day, anybody know what God creates that day? Birds and fish. Birds and fish, okay. Sixth day, what does God create? Land animals. And bonus creation day, man. Right? Seventh day, he rests. Seventh day, he rests. So, in the Hebrew grammar, uh, it, we lose it in our English translation, but in the Hebrew grammar, the grammar actually lines up to where the verbs that are used in day one corresponds with day four, and the verbs used in day two correspond with six, or five, sorry, two and five, and then three corresponds with six. The verbs line up. The grammar, the cadence, the rhythm to it lines up on both of those, right? So in our mind, when we hear light, we think science, we think astronomy, right? But to the ancient mind, the sun and the moon didn't necessarily imply science or light, but time, time. And if you read on the fourth day, when God creates the greater light, the lesser light, and the stars, it's to govern the night and day. So they rule over the time. On the second day, he, cre he separates the waters above from the waters below because Genesis isn't a science book. It's a Hebrew creation narrative poem, right? He, he separates the water above from the water below. And then he creates the things that rule those times, those places, right? The birds to rule the sky, the fish to rule the sea, right? Day three, gathers the land together and then plants. And then he creates animals and man to rule. Does that make sense? And on the seventh day he rested. Isn't that really cool? Okay, so the seventh thing is pretty neat. Um, so there's this, there's this historical document called the Enuma Elish, okay? And it's like the Babylonian creation account. Um, if you get around some really angry atheists, sometimes they'll bring it up, be like, oh, the Bible just ripped off the Enuma Elish. And you're like, what? Right? I know I was. Anyway, okay. That joke killed last time. Um, so uh, the Enuma Elish is the story of the Babylonian god Marduk. Okay, Marduk, not Marmaduke, but Marduk, right? He, uh, he was the one brave god to stand up against the chaotic water monster named Tiamat, okay? And so he bravely stood up to Tiamat and killed her and then cut her in half. I don't know why, was, I don't know why it was a she, it just was, okay? Um, cut Tiamat in half and made her body the land and in the other half of her body the sky, okay? And the story of Marduk was written on seven tablets. Seven tablets, Okay, and so what would happen is when they were in Babylon and they're building Marduk's temple, right? They would, um, they would bring out the first tablet and they say, here's the schedule. Here are the days that we're going to celebrate him, right? And then the second day they come out 
And they'd say, they'd read the story of him killing Tiamat and separating her body into the sky and the land. And they'd say, we are going to lay the foundation of the temple and put the roof on it. And the third day, they'd put the walls on it. See what I'm saying? And the story corresponded to the creation of the temple. And then on the sixth day, they would bring in the idol of Marduk and they would put him in the temple. And it was after that day, on the seventh day, that it was considered that the God himself would Shabbat or Sabbath in the temple. There are seven days of creation in the Genesis account, not because they stole it from the Enuma Elish, but to show that God was better than Marduk. I think, frankly, I think it was a middle finger to all of the cultures around them. Baal, Moloch, Dagon, Marduk, Ahura Mazda, they all have cute little temples. But my God's temple is the earth. On the first day, he set the schedule for our celebration. On the second day, he put the ceiling, the sky, and the foundation, the sea. On the third day, he closed in the walls. Isn't that cool? Isn't that awesome? Um, sorry. There's also... Um, so we have this idea that the earth is God's temple, right? And that's like the, one of the first things that we pull out of here. Adam and Eve are expelled from the temple, or expelled from the garden, right? And then fire falls, and there's an angel holding a flaming sword to say that this is where God lives. This is where heaven and earth touch, right? And then we go forward in time, and Moses leads the Israelites out of Egypt and, and he gives seven speeches. And those seven speeches are instructions on how to build the tabernacle, the mobile temple. And then after they built it, on the seventh day, Moses prays and says, God, show us that you're here and fire falls from heaven. And then we go forward in time, Solomon builds his temple in Jerusalem. And it's given to them in seven speeches. And then Solomon prays, God, let us know that you're here, and fire falls from heaven onto the temple. And then Jesus dies on a hill, is buried, rises again, and meets with his friends to pray on Pentecost. And fire falls from heaven and rests on each of their heads. You're the temple. The tabernacle, Solomon's temple, the second temple, all of them, on the inside of them, were decorated like a garden. There were trees, there were flowers, there were images of animals. They were all decorated like that. Because God wants you to recall the garden. Right? And he's also saying, you are now the temple. Fire fell just like it fell in all the other three times that heaven and earth met. Does that make sense? Okay. You have any questions so far?
y'all must be tired. Or is this really heavy? Like, what's going on? Everybody, everybody's totally doing Bible study face. You know? Or like um, Black Panther in Civil War, you know, after his father dies. You know what I'm talking about? He does the zone out thing where he's just like, I'm the Black Panther. <laughs> a warrior king. This has been past-. And he just stares at a blank space. You're all doing that to me. Knock it off. <laughs> Unless you're Black Panther. In which case, can I have your autograph? <laughs> anyway. Okay. Um, so some other cool notes. In, in chapter 2, uh, we're just going to go quickly because we don't have a whole lot of time. Um, <clears throat> so chapter 2 doesn't actually start to like verse 3. And that's why uh, it repeats, right? Is because chapter 1 is a creation poem. And then chapter 2 starts the narrative. Does that make sense? Okay. So there's some people that are like, why does it repeat creation? It's like, because it's writing. That's why. Um, okay, so uh, it is given to Adam to work and care for the earth, right? To work and care for the garden. That phrase, work and care for, uh, the last group didn't get this, so you're welcome. Um, the work and care for, those words, I didn't write down what the Hebrew, actual Hebrew words were, but those words are only used in relation to Adam and Eve in the garden and the Levites and priests in the temple. Isn't that cool? So it only reinforces the idea of the garden being a temple, and the temple being the garden. Isn't that awesome? So you just like, that's what you do. You just pull these threads and keep going with them and see where they take you. Okay, um, let's see if we can get, like I really want a grandstand on like the creation of Eve, but I just don't think I should. Okay, um, 20 bucks and I'll do it. No. Um, okay, so chapter 3, right? The terrible thing, right? Chapter 3, the turning point of the, point of the book. It's after chapter 3 that Jesus has to come, right? This is where everything falls apart, okay? Um, so there was a serpent in the garden, okay? The Hebrew word for serpent is seraph, okay? Um, have you heard the word seraphim? Yeah. Okay, that's Hebrew for snakes. That's plural for serpents. Seraph, seraphim. Just like El, Elohim. Isn't that nuts? So there's a lot of debate. Was this a spiritual being, an angelic being? Like when we read seraphim, it's always angels, almost, right? So was this an angelic being? Or did Isaiah see a bunch of snakes flying around God's throne in his vision, right? Or could it be both, right? So it's only reinforcing the idea that this serpent is some kind of special creature, right? And then we get to the fall, right? And he says, uh, the serpent speaking to the woman said, you surely will not die for God knows that in the day you eat from it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God knowing good and evil. Actually, you know what? I'm going to talk about another point. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took from it its fruit and ate and she gave also to her husband with her. And he ate. And we're all internally screaming, No! Right? Okay. 
Um, okay, so that phrase, it says the tree was desirable and then Eve took. In the Hebrew, it has a cadence to it, a rhythm to it. You know, kind of like how we have nursery rhymes and stuff, you know, or like the rhythm that people give you their phone number, ba-da-da, da-da-da-da, right? Everybody does that. And if anybody messes with it, like you end up with like six numbers and you don't know what happened, right? If someone's like, ba-da-da-da, da-da-da, you're like, what, what was that? Are you calling from England? What is going on? You know what I'm talking about? It's that kind of thing. We all have that rhythm, okay? So this was that kind of thing. There's a rhythm to it. Okay, so if we... Flip to Genesis chapter 6. It says, The sons of God saw that the daughters of men were beautiful or desirable, and they took. Just like the fall. You see something that you desire and you take it for yourself without consulting God, without talking about God. But you place your desires above all of creation and you gratify them selfishness right so genesis 6 is an inversion of the genesis 3 story not only does man rebel against god but angelic beings rebel against god as well isn't that crazy and then if we continue forward we'll get to this point in uh, deuteronomy chapter 21 and there's this you don't have to go there there's this story where like God says like, hey, if you, if you see a captive woman from a nation that you've conquered and you desire her to be your wife and you take her, right? If we read that verse just plainly, we, we tend to think like, oh man, is God condoning like rape? Because that's what it sounds like. But a Jewish boy listening to the law being spoken to him would have known the cadence, would have known the rhythm. Did you, did you hear it? desire and take. So by the way that it was said, by the way it was written, the action is condemned. And we miss it because we don't take the time to look. Does that make sense? Okay. Um, Okay. uh, I'll do something different for y'all. Adam and Eve, right, they fall Okay, Satan tempts them, the serpent tempts them with the, uh, you know, promise to become godly, to become like God, which is the very thing God wanted with us anyway, right? Because we selfishly desire to do things our way and not listen to Jesus, right? And then Adam and Eve, they realize that they've messed up. And so they run and they grab some fig leaves and the Hebrew says they wove an apron of fig leaves to cover themselves, right? So they cover themselves, right? And then God says, what are you doing? And God's like, we, the Adam and Eve are like, we, we knew we were naked and we were scared and so we hid. We hid from each other, we hid from you. Sin enters in and destroys all essential relationships. It destroyed them, it broke them. The first time that they ever misunderstood each other. And then to compensate, they cover themselves with fig leaves. And God comes along and he says, no, that won't do. I have a lamb that I'm going to slay. I'm going to kill this lamb, and I'm going to use that to cover your nakedness. 
And he did. The first death occurred in the garden. And then we fast forward all the way to Jesus. And Jesus is walking to the temple and he sees this fig tree. It's got a lot of leaves but no fruit. And he curses it. And then he walks into the temple and he clears the temple. Drives out the money changers. Drives out the hypocrites. Right? They're fumbling over each other to get away from him. Think back to the garden. Adam and Eve tried to use fig leaves to cover themselves, to make themselves pre presentable before God, before each other. And then Jesus says, that'll never do. I am the lamb that will die to cover you. Do you see that? See, those fig leaves represent our futile attempts to cover ourselves with religion. And while there's a lot of leaves, there's no fruit, it'll never do. It'll never last. Only the sacrifice of the lamb. Isn't that nuts? How much further do you want to go? I, I mean, I can keep talking about the godliness and an ungodly manner thing. Um, what do you think? Should I do that one? Okay. <clears throat> so the serpent tempts them by saying, you shall be like God. But like what Jason talked about this morning, right? He said, Romans 8, 29, is that those he foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, that he may be the firstborn among many brethren. We're, we're all supposed to look like Jesus anyway, right? So what was Satan tempting us with? It was God's goal for us to look like him. That's why we say like, hey, he's a real godly person, right? Because that's something to be aspired to and it's something to be attained, right? John says, but we know not what, we, what he will uh, look like, but we do know when we see him, we shall be like him, right? Okay. So what were they tempted with? Well, it was the desire and take thing right? They wanted a shortcut. They wanted the end goal, right? You cannot attain the goals of God apart from the character of God. You cannot attain the goals of God apart from the character of God, okay? So we're going to take this thought and we're going to fast forward. It reappears over and over and over. Abraham and Sarah, right? God had promised them a child, but they wanted that goal, but they didn't want his character. They didn't want the wisdom and patience that he has. So Abraham took Haggai and had a son, and it led to violence and dysfunction in the family, right? They wanted to be godly in an ungodly manner. And then we fast forward all the way to Jesus, and there's this guy named Judas, there's this dude named Judas, right? And I think he gets a bad rap. I mean, because he betrayed Jesus. But I think that we tend to think of him as some kind of cartoonish villain. You know what I mean? He's like some skeezy looking guy hanging out in the corner, right? But you don't give that guy the money bag. I know that they thought highly of him because they trusted him with all the money. I also know that everybody thought really well of him because at the Last Supper, Jesus said, to whom I give this bread, dipped bread to, he is the one that betrays me. And Jesus gave it to him. And everyone was like, oh, Judas must be just going to do something else. 
right? And that dipped bread is called the sop, the SOP, right? It's the first fruits of the dinner table. It's, it goes to the most honored person at your table. The most honored guest gets that. Double meaning there. Jesus just gave the highest honor to the person he knew was going to nail him to the cross, right? So Jesus gives that to Judas. He gets up and everybody's like, Judas is the one that deserves it, of course. He's the most honorable one. So why did he fall? Why was he the betrayer? It doesn't make any sense. Well, you have to contextualize your little, yourself a little bit, right? You get into the context of his culture. See, a couple centuries before, there was this, the, the Jews were living under the foot of Antiochus IV Epiphanes, and he like defiled the temple. He sacrificed a, a pig on the altar, right? And the Maccabeans revolted. And this is where the story of Hanukkah comes from. And the Maccabean symbol was a palm branch. That was the symbol of their rebellion. And they defeated him and they freed Israel. And Israel was its own nation again for the first time in centuries. Along came the Romans. And all of a sudden they're under someone else's heel. And when Jesus comes back proclaiming the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God being at hand, and he walks in, he rides into Jerusalem. What do they greet him with? Palm leaves. The symbol of the revolt. See, Judas thought it was going to be a military revolt. Everyone did. So Judas, in his head, is thinking, we're going to, it's the kingdom of God. God's rulership is going to be here. This is the son of God. That's the title for the king. He's going to be king of Israel again right? What, what's going through his mind when he sees that person get healed, right? What's going through his mind when he sees that, that Jesus took like a kid's Lunchable and fed 5,000 people, right? What does he think when Lazarus walks out of the tomb? We will never be injured. We will never lack of supplies. We will never die. This army will be unbeatable, and then Jesus starts talking about his crucifixion and his death, and it doesn't make any sense. So maybe Judas thought, I know that Jesus needs to set up his kingdom here. I know we're going to fight that fight, and we're going to lead that army. So I know I'll help. I will set up a conflict that he can't get out of. And we'll show up with the temple guards, and they'll be like, are you Jesus? And he'll say, I am and then he'll flash fry everybody. Be like, and be like, thank you, Judas, for helping me remember. I'm the warrior, right? But that's not what happened. See, Judas was a smart man. He had the money bag. He knew how much money was worth. 30 pieces of silver is not a lot. It wasn't that he didn't value Jesus. It's that he didn't think the money would be consequential. The real deal would be when Jesus finally stepped up to the plate and fought like he was supposed to. See, it's true that it's God's goal to have kingdom on earth. It's true. But Judas wanted to do it in an ungodly way. It was the temptation of the snake in the garden. You'll be wise in your own eyes. And you'll be like God, thinking you know good from evil. Right? 
And that's the way that we all fall. So we try to be godly in an ungodly way. We try to attain the goals of God in an ungodly manner. You cannot do God's work devoid of his character. So we're out of time. Um, well, do we have till three? Okay, we got like 10 minutes. Any questions so far? Okay, chapter 4, verse 1. Now the man, Adam, had relations with his wife Eve, and she conceived and gave birth to Cain. And she said, I have gotten a man-child with the help of the Lord. That is not what it says. Okay? So in, in my NASB, it has with the help of the Lord in italics. And that means words that they added in English to try and make the understanding of the sentence better. That's not actually what the Hebrew bears out. See, what it says in the Hebrew is just like four simple words. I have gotten man with God. Right? That's it. Um, let me make sure I'm staying on point here. Okay, so... <clears throat> The Hebrew word for have gotten, right, is kanach. Kanach, Q-A-N-A-H, if you care. 46 times in the Bible it's translated as buy or purchase. B-Y, B-U-Y, buy, right? Only 15 times is it tra translated as get or gotten, okay? The next thing is the word with in Hebrew, eth. Okay, this is different than with, other withs, right? In Hebrew, they had like four different ways to say with. In English, we got one. So this one was unique because it was like an exclusive inclusion, okay? So it says of uh, Joseph and uh, Potiphar, right? It says Potiphar knew nothing of his business with Joseph, right? So because Joseph was, was there, Potiphar knew nothing, or when God says, you will have no gods beside me. The Hebrew word is eth. You will have no gods with me. Because they're grouped together, it's excluded. Does that make sense? So what Eve says here is that I have bought man. I have bought a child without God. She's learned nothing. The attitude is terrible, right? That's wicked. And then if you, we continue reading chapter 4, we see that the attitude bears through in the actions of the child. Cain slays his son Abel and then begins a line that ends with Lamech, the seventh from Cain, who is the most wicked and vile person in the Old Testament. He's the first person that we see bragging about murder, first person that we see with multiple wives, so that implies greed, right? And he says, God... Uh, God cursed whomever would kill Cain seven times, but let whoever kills Lamech be cursed 70 times seven. And then when we flip forward to Matthew 18, Peter says, Jesus, how many times should I, should I forgive my brother? And he says, 70 times seven. He wants you to remember that. Even if your brother is the worst 
person in history, Lamech, forgive him. It's not a numerical thing, right? And then we continue down right at the end of verse 4, or chapter 4, right? It talks about Eve, right? She says, God has appointed me another offspring in the place of Abel, for Cain killed him. Her attitude is different. God has given me another child. And then from Seth's line, we have Noah. And if you follow the line of Adam to Noah through Seth, and you translate the meanings of their names in chapter 5, this is chapter 5 of Genesis, this is what you get. Right, I'll, I'll say the names first. Adam, Seth, Enosh, Kenan, Mahalalel, Jared, Enoch, Methuselah, Lamech, Noah. This is a different Lamech, okay? If you translate the meaning of those names, it says, man appointed mortal sorrow. The blessed God shall come down teaching. His death shall bring the despairing rest. The gospel is in chapter five of Genesis. So there you go. Jesus, help these people read the Bible, make them hungry for it. Lord God, speak to them. Amen. Thanks for listening to this Chi Alpha podcast from Summit 2019. Be sure to check out the rest of the sessions, and we'll see you next year.